Welcome to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. I'm D.T. Kane, author of the epic fantasy series The Agersfar Saga and The Spoken Books Uprising. Each week, I read from one of my novels, discuss my writing process, answer your questions, and have general discussions about fantasy fiction. It's like a book club, except I do all the work for you. Find show notes, info about all my novels, and much more at dtkane.com. Here's the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Today is Sunday, September 18th, 2022, as I record this, which is episode 9 of season 2 of the podcast and episode 36 overall. Uh, Let's see, obviously, the big news this week is Declaimer's Stand is finally out and available for purchase. Always exciting to uh, send another one of my creations out into the world. Um, I hope everyone who has started reading it already is enjoying it, and uh, you can run over to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Kobo or Google Play Books or various other places where you uh, get ebooks or physical books to pick up a copy of your own as well, if you like. Link uh, in the show notes. Um, but hopefully, uh, hopefully everyone enjoys part four of the Spoken Books Uprising, which, of course, we'll be reading, uh, I guess, sometime next year. Probably as the uh, the podcast rolls on, reading through the Spoken Books Uprising. Um, <clears throat> other than that, uh, kind of a tiring week for me. Was traveling for work all week, giving some training to some of my company's offices downstate. So uh, <clears throat> it was a good trip. Saw a lot of people I haven't seen in a while, really since before the uh, the old pre-COVID days. But um, glad to be home now, and I think I'm finally getting caught up on some sleep, and I am looking forward to working on a couple of smaller projects before starting my draft of Part 5 of the Spoken Books Uprising in a few weeks. And of course, as the weeks roll on here, I'll have more details about that, but uh, I'm planning on writing another short story in my Temporal Operations Militia universe. Uh, That first story is now out on my Patreon account. If you're interested in in giving that a read, kind of like I said, uh, you know, field medics for for the space-time continuum, if that sounds interesting to you, you can go give that a whirl over on on Patreon, patreon.com slash dtkane. Okay, uh, I think that's it for the, the personal updates here. So why don't we just get into the meat of the episode. Um, <clears throat> no analysis, or excuse me, all analysis this week. No uh, no narration. Uh, this week we'll pick up with uh, the beginning of part two of Declaimer's Discovery next week when we read chapter 11. Uh, this week we'll just be discussing uh, what we've read on the previous couple of episodes, which is chapters 8 through 10 of Declaimer's Discovery. Um, so starting off with chapter eight, it picks up, uh, immediately after chapter seven, which is the last chapter we analyzed a few weeks ago. Um, chapter seven, if you'll recall, is where Baz met all of the, the snakes in their underground kind of, uh, chamber. Uh, he learned about their plan to poison the water supply to kind of kill some readers, but also obviously that would kill other people just besides readers and Baz talked them out of that or at least got them to delay their plan uh, by telling them he was going to fortune and that there was a weapon there uh, that uh, that he was going to find that could help them <clears throat> in their apparent rebellion. Uh, so that just sets the stage. So on to chapter eight, kind of right off the bat, we learn a few facts about Baz's journey here. So the, uh, the round trip time uh, from erstwhile to fortune and back is nearly a month by itself. So uh, the snakes have said they'll delay their plan to poison the water by 30 days, but that is uh, that's not really going to be enough time, is it? If it's 
if it takes 30 days to tra- just to travel to and from uh, Fortune, uh, plus Baz, you know, has to stay for this Congress that Deliritus has been invited to, and he also uh, has to <laughs> search for the Declaimer's Transcendence. So 30 days, uh, not not enough time here. <clears throat> so Baz is going to have to figure out how to, how to deal with that. Also, the City of Fortune is apparently much larger uh, than erstwhile. I think Baz notes that he's heard Liam in a library alone is almost as large as the entire city of erstwhile. A city unto itself, Baz tells us. Um, so he really is kind of searching for a needle in a haystack here. Uh, and a quick aside, uh, Liam in a library, where does that name come from? Well, you may recall from book one that Liamina Fortune was one of the three great scribes, along with the Enigma, um, who founded the city of Enigma, which we have not visited yet. Though, you do get to visit it in Declaimer's Stand, part four of the Spoken Books Uprising, which just released this week. Um, So the Enigma and Helfax Erstwhile was the other scribe, obviously the founder of the city of Erstwhile. So, uh, Liam in a library, which is the library that Duke Farston is from, um, was founded by the founder of the City of Fortune, uh, who was also one of the three scribes. So, uh, an important library in Fortune, to be sure, and a giant one, just kind of emphasizing the, the tall task Baz has in front of him here. <clears throat> Uh, but just uh, jumping back into the action for a minute here, the uh, the snakes are closing out their meeting, and apparently they always close it out by lighting a fire, because fire binds all, according to uh, Scrivenic scriptures, that uh, Ogs seems, uh, he likes to quote these Scrivenic sayings, apparently. But fire binds all, so they, they light a fire at the end of each meeting to uh, kind of remind themselves that they are all united in this cause. <clears throat> Um, but interesting, uh, they don't just burn sticks and wood in this fire. Uh, Ogs has a spoken book, and he rips a page out of it and, uh, tosses it into the fire, much to Baz's chagrin, (laughs) right? He's, despite, uh, obviously not really liking readers, Baz has spent his entire life, uh, being taught that you kind of treat spoken books like holy relics, so it's a bit, uh, bit sacrilegious to see the uh, the snakes here ripping pages out of one and burning them, but, uh, you know, just uh, really symbolic of uh, of the rebellion they want to start. They are uh, uh, they are stomping on tradition here, you know, or stomping on, you know, the things that, that readers prize most by ripping pages out of books. Also interesting, too, you might recall from chapters 6 and 7, they... Uh, they called Baz a page ripper a few times, um, which in this society is certainly an insult. You don't want to be ripping pages, but it's uh, maybe gives you a bit of a different perspective on that on that name now, seeing that the snakes do in fact rip pages out of books. So uh, probably they were still intending to intending it as an insult against Baz earlier, but uh, maybe not entirely. Um, maybe more of a term of endearment or more of like a a name you call someone when they're annoying you but you don't actually dislike them so just a little interesting detail there for the observant reader uh also just really quick we see Baz is not really good with the ladies right we got um Anel who is kind of this this uh the the female of the group here she's been skeptical of Baz, and but now she kind of, I guess, apparently the rebels in Fortune are known for kind of uh, lewd dancing. Apparently at their <laughs> at their meetings, uh, and she kind of shakes her hips at Baz, and Baz just, uh, you know, he kind of splutters, denying that he has any interest in dancing when he sees that. So, uh, uh, just a little character detail about Baz there, but he's certainly not a ladies' man. Doesn't seem he's ever really had uh the opportunity uh to really get close with uh with anyone of the opposite sex there and uh i don't know we do know he has this apparently budding relationship with liana though that has all of its own baggage giving liana's place in society but uh we'll see if that becomes any more relevant here as we move on <clears throat> uh 
we also see what these leather pouches are all about. Uh, we saw that the snakes, at least several of them, have these leather pouches uh, strung around their necks. And um, Munch, uh, who is Og's brother, kind of scoops it into the, the barrel once the fire's gone out and fills it with some ashes before he he runs away. And we learn, well, we don't learn this till the end of the chapter, but that's the a symbol that you are a member of this organization. If you've got the ashes of a burned spoken book in your in your pouch, that's, uh, that signifies that you are a, a member of the snakes, which is a bit of a, and I made up the part about burning books, but um, this is another inspired thing inspired by the the Haitian slave revolution some of them did carry little uh, they, you know they're called fetishes into battle um, but just little uh, objects or symbols uh, you know for luck or some had religious connotations but you know very very loosely inspired uh, by that real life thing here <clears throat> um, all right so after the the meeting of the snakes breaks up Ogs takes Baz through the tunnel that apparently leads to Torch Sire Library. Um, you know, and Baz is having some conflicting feelings here. We get a bit of his inner monologue as he's trailing behind Ogs. You know, on the one hand, he doesn't, uh, you know, he still doesn't even really believe he'll find the Declaimer's Transcendence when he goes, uh, you know, to Fortune. And he's, you know, he's kind of down, a little morose, uh, not really surprising baz is often morose here right you know but you know he's going on what's the point of the rebellion uh, or really of a rebellion any rebellion you know without the ability to read baz tells us speakers are just a lot of impoverished nothings uh you know but on the other hand he does acknowledge he does acknowledge that despite that he felt bad for the snakes and that's why he's he has made this promise to you know bring back the quote weapon which is really the declaimer's transcendence he just doesn't want to tell them exactly what it is that he's looking for um you know and he doesn't uh you know he doesn't want to see a bunch of killing either you know he doesn't want the snakes to die but he also sees some injustice in killing uh even some of the readers <clears throat> i think you know and Og says you know you're not what i expected uh baz you know i guess hearing the all these stories coming out about baz uh, they form a certain opinion of him and Oggs was clearly thinking that Baz was going to be more of a uh, a rabble rouser than he is and he was obviously surprised that Baz wasn't immediately excited at the prospect of poisoning a bunch of readers you know but Oggs points out you know you know maybe you want to keep breathing Baz because that's Baz's response to everything right he's just worried about uh staying alive himself uh but Oggs tells us well but you want others to keep breathing uh too uh, sorry for that slight interruption there. Had some sirens driving past uh, the window there, so I figured I would pause it so you didn't have to <laughs> listen to that. But right, so Oaks, uh, just to reiterate, Oaks says, uh, you know, you want others to keep breathing too, Baz. You know, you're not just about mindless killing, and Oaks even admits that sometimes he has trouble seeing past, you know, just his desire to get revenge against uh, the readers. Um... You know, and this also touches on, you know, this is a, it's a tough question, right? You know, really, you know, is killing ever, ever the answer? You know, but I think Baz, you know, maybe subconsciously wants to think he has the high ground here over the snakes, but he kind of realizes that what he had to do out in the wilds of part one maybe isn't too different uh, from what the snakes are planning here. Um, you know, Baz killed a couple people. Uh, during the Actus Trials, um, he killed Hellar's harbor with that shadow spell to save Deliritus. And then, you know, maybe he didn't, uh, you know, he didn't lift the sword that ended up killing Marla, but he led Marla out onto the, the peninsula beneath Tome, you know, fully knowing that something bad was going to happen to her out there. You know, but he'd had to act. Um, you know, he didn't really have a choice, and that seems to be how Oogs feels here, too. You know, his rebels can't just sit around uh, any longer while they watch these injustices from the readers continue to pile up. So, you know, Baz is certainly conflicted here. You know, he sees the, the evil uh, in killing, no matter what the justification, but he can also kind of 
understand the position as Oaks is in because Baz has been in such a position himself in the past. Um, you know, and I think Oaks realizes too that Baz is maybe getting on a bit of a, you know, get, getting on a bit of a high horse here. Don't get all Xavier Tower on me. And I don't know, uh, maybe that was uh, too much of a stretch of, a, uh, of an idiom for this world. But, you know, like I said, um, I didn't want to use high horse because that's kind of a, uh, a cliche from our world. But don't get all Xavier Tower on me. Xavier Tower is the, uh, the tallest building in erstwhile. So if you're, you're getting Xavier Tower on someone, you're getting high and mighty, right? <laughs> that's what Oaks is telling Baz not to do. Um, I don't know if anyone got that <clears throat> besides me, but that's, that's what that meant. Um, you know, we also see Oaks kind of respects Baz here. Um, you know, Baz basically accuses Oaks of uh, encouraging murder, and Oaks stops and kind of pokes him in the chest, you know, and asks him, is what you said back there true about uh, a weapon in fortune? And Baz kind of has this cold moment of realization, like, you know, he could just leave me. He could just kill me and leave me here in the tunnels. No one would ever know. Um, but despite that, Baz tells the truth, you know. He's not certain that there is actually anything in fortune, which uh, turns out to be the right answer, right? Because Oaks actually seems to, to respect that. And he tells Baz, well, okay, I'll, uh, I'll do what I can to uh, delay us for longer than a month. Uh, I don't know if Oaks comes right and says it, but I'm sure he knows that a month probably is not long enough to get to and from Fortune, though he does have the caveat that, well, that's subject to what the All-Seeing One has to say. If the All-Seeing One comes down, who we still don't know who this All-Seeing One is, um, at least at this point in Chapter 8. <clears throat> uh, you know, But he can override me, so I'll do what I can for you, though, Baz. Uh, so finally, we get to the end of the tunnel. Apparently, there's just a big shelf in front of, uh, the tunnel that's, uh, blocking it from view if you're on the other side in the Torch Sire sub-basement, which, you know, maybe, maybe makes you wonder a little how no one has found it to this point, though we have seen, uh, multiple references that readers don't really go down into the sub-basement. That's where they throw their blinded speakers, so... Uh, maybe not too much, too much of a stretch to uh, think that the the readers don't know about this hidden tunnel down there. But regardless, they uh, they get there and Baz and Oogs part ways. So Oogs gives Baz his his own leather pouch and explains how you become one of the snakes, as we talked about earlier. You know, fill this up with the ashes of a burnt spoken book, and you'll you'll be part of the club. You know, but what makes you think I want to join the snakes, Oogs? Well, <laughs> Oaks has a good comeback to that, right? You know, well, you followed a stranger around half a verst while at the mere suggestion of causing some trouble for the readers. Baz doesn't have much of a response to that. Um, and he does take the pouch, right? He thinks about just tossing it away, but at the end of the chapter, he shoves it into a pocket. So, uh, you know, obviously, for all his uh, expressed reservations, Baz is not totally writing off the prospect of, of joining a rebellion against the readers. Because I think, like Ogs says, uh, you know, Baz sees... Um, Baz understands there's something wrong here, right? And maybe Baz hasn't accepted yet that he can actually do something about it, but he clearly has the, his own innate sense of right and wrong. Um, so maybe even if it's still a little bit below the surface of Baz's consciousness, um, you know, he's not just going to throw away this opportunity to to perhaps rise up against the readers, even though he maybe has not totally accepted for himself yet that he is going to join. Um, all right, so that kind of leads us right into Chapter 9, which again just picks up the action right where we left off in 8. Baz enters a sub-basement. You know, it does take time to uh, hide the tunnel again, you know, even though he thinks the snake's uprising is a bit ridiculous, you know. He's not going to contribute any further <laughs> to them being found out by just leaving this obvious tunnel uh, there. So he covers it back up with the shelf. Um, then he heads off into the sub-basement, kind of struggles his way through the darkness for a while. But eventually he finds uh, the retirees um, being led by tax, just like they were 
in book one, remember the retirees are all the uh, speakers who have been blinded and kind of just left to slowly rot down in the sub-basement here of Torchsire Library. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, and as Bass finds them, they are singing a funeral dirge for Gar. Remember, um, Tax apparently writes songs, or at least composes songs, in the languages of uh, destruction, creation, and influence that the retirees sing. Uh, this funeral dirge is being sung in destruction, which seems kind of fitting. It's kind of a mournful song, uh, sad and angry all at once. And you know, Baz notes this kind of mystical effect that Tex's music sometimes seems to have on him. And you know, he's kind of pulled into the music. Right, he starts singing along until his his voice is raw, and he realizes he's cr he's crying along with the rest of the. Uh, the other speakers, too, over uh, Gar's death. Um, and as the song kind of finally fizzles out, it's just kind of like a raw burst of emotion here, right? Almost kind of like a like the, the Klingon death howl, right? <laughs> Maybe I had uh, uh, suggestions of that floating around in my mind when I, when I wrote this scene here. But uh, as the singing uh, subsides, you know, Baz realizes the anger he does feel at Gar having had to die alone in the dark, you know, none of them should have to, none of them should have to, you know, have that fate hovering over them, uh, you know, Baz kind of notes, that's like how all, how all speakers live their lives, you know, fearing the day when they're blinded and thrown into the sub-basement to, you know, live out a dark remainder of their lives, <clears throat> um, you know, and this is just this is just building up or intensifying Baz's internal conflict here about whether, you know, taking such an extreme stand against the readers, you know, you know, basically killing the readers, uh, is it right? You know, is again is killing ever the right answer? And I don't think I, uh, I don't have the answer to that question. I'm just, uh, you know, flagging these issues for for consideration here. But uh, you know, in this moment, Baz is feeling the anger of the other retirees, and he dwells on some other injustices that they are subjected to. Um, we learn that, um, you know, some of the retirees are, uh, you know, they, they've done something that, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly would generally subject them to a death sentence, but apparently Dukak Tavna likes to blind them first and throw them into the darkness and uh, let them live in uncertainty, wondering when the executioner's blade is finally going to fall. Um... So that's some some cruelty right there. He just doesn't he doesn't just kill them, but he makes them uh, wait in dread for the execution to come after they've been maimed. Um, but we also learn that other retirees just kind of disappear for no apparent reason. Um, so now that raises some question marks. Uh, you know, where are these other retirees going? Maybe um, you know, maybe we just don't know. <laughs> you know, why they were sent to sent down there, and the Duke finally decides it's time for them to meet their end. But we don't know at this point why that happens, and that's why the retirees don't really, you know, they get together for these songs, but Baz notes they kind of quickly disperse after that. and You know, they don't want to get too attached to one another, because, you know, if you make friends with someone, they could just not be there the next day. Um, Tax is apparently safe from this fate, though. Of course, safe is in quotation marks, because Tax's situation is not the best. But uh, apparently the Duke uses him for breeding, uh, which, you know, another another low here. But remember, tax is, uh, tax is what they call a try. Try is in T-R-I because he can, um, he can call power from all three of the, uh, the languages of the Trinity. You know, remember, Baz is a destroyer. Um, he's not, uh, you know, he's not suited to speaking creation or influence spells. He's focused on blowing stuff up. Uh, but Tax uh, apparently has this innate ability uh, to draw power from all three languages of the Trinity. So the Duke keeps him around, hoping, I guess, he's going to create more speakers with that power in the future. <clears throat> uh, and kind of just driving home very literally here, uh, you know, because this idea of using a person for breeding, a very, you know, it degrades the individual down to, like, the level of just an animal, and apparently that is how the readers think of speakers. Uh, Baz notes that he once saw kind of an inventory of 
Torchsire assets and noted that the uh, the speakers were listed right beside the the livestock on that inventory bandsaw, which um, is actually a real life thing that I uh, got inspiration for again. Um, that was something uh, from the Haitian slave revolution, how some plantation owners did list their slaves uh, kind of along with the other animals they had on the plantation. So again, kind of another uh, despicable practice here and just another one of the many uh, injustices that the speakers are subjected to here. You know, and maybe we see Baz, uh, you know, we're slowly seeing Baz maybe come around to the idea that something really does have to be done here that maybe an uprising is necessary however hopeless he perhaps thinks such an uprising uh would be <clears throat> uh okay so after that the retirees kind of disperse and uh, baz and tax have their uh they get together and you know baz kind of you know he opens the conversation by well tax you're not going to believe this but there's there's a tunnel over there that that leads to all the other libraries and and Tax is like, yeah, yeah, I know. And <laughs> Baz is, what do you mean you know? Um, and it kind of comes out that, well, Tax knows. He knows about the snakes. And uh, he, in fact, is the all-seeing one who the snakes were referencing. So Tax is actually involved in this rebellion, um, you know, which kind of takes Baz aback, right? Two, <laughs> two chapters ago, Baz was saying, like, oh, I need to stay away from this all-seeing one. I hope I don't meet him. But uh, it's actually his own brother. Um, so for the first time, we're actually seeing the development of a bit of a conflict here between him and his brother, because obviously, even if Baz is maybe beginning to come around to the idea of a rebellion, he's certainly not on board with this idea to poison the water supply it's murder tax it's war baz you know they're butting heads here on uh what the proper tactic um would be and tax makes some good points here right you know the reader you know what baz is saying well tax is like well that's exactly what the uh the readers want us to think baz they want us to think this situation is hopeless but you know you know you know you're the one who discovered it their power is all based on lies you know they're not actually any better than us. In fact, we could uh, we could learn to read, and uh, you know this division of reader and speaker is just uh, just a big lie. You know readers could become speakers too if they just uh, took the time to kind of foster this innate power that everyone has inside them. You remember we learned back in part one when Baz was speaking to Tessa in undertone that you know maybe some people are born um, more naturally attuned to the spoken books and being able to draw power from them and the elements. And those are the people who end up being turned into speakers because they don't necessarily need to practice. They can kind of draw power naturally. But just because some people are born with a slightly more ability doesn't mean that others can't come to learn the ability as well. So again, it's a, it's a lie that speakers are, are really anything anything special in society but it is a lie that has been perpetuated for hundreds of years now and that really supports uh readers dominance over the speakers by saying well the speakers are this small unique subset that's dangerous to society and they have to be controlled um you know and taxes like well we just need we need a leader to act in the face of that uh nameless and undefined idea of terror that the readers have instilled in us um, you know, and originally Baz thinks, well, oh, so you're that leader, Tax? A little skeptical, but, uh, uh, you know, I think there's maybe some mixed messaging here from Tax. Um, you know, on the one hand, Tax does seem to think that he is this leader, um, but we also learn that he's the one who's been spreading these rumors, um, you know, about Baz, about how he tamed a dragon and flew it to uh flew it to tome and some of these other things you know that baz is the one who completed the trials you know and i guess they're rumors but they're true too right <laughs> baz just doesn't want them getting out so who does tax actually think should be the leader uh, you know because remember tax told the snakes to listen to baz too so uh you know tax obviously has a bone to pick with the readers but he's also kind of uh he's creating a bit of a, a cult of personality around baz here as well kind of building building him up so um 
it's going to be interesting to see how that develops here over the course of uh, this book and subsequent books as well. Um, you know, and part of that mixed messaging, remember, because on the one hand, Tax told the snakes to listen to Baz, but then he's like, well, I'll go tell the snakes to stand down until you return Baz. You know, again, Baz is actually a little ticked about that one. It's like, well, I thought you told the snakes to listen to me, but then Tax is going, well, the implication here as well, but they really need me to tell them what to do, little brother. So, again, uh, does Tax think he should be the leader of this rebellion, or is it his brother, or, or what? Um... You know, and Tax is, you know, Tax is a little harsh here, too. You can see how hard he is. You know, he's not um, afraid to, he's clearly not afraid to do some killing, right? Whereas Baz is certainly hesitant to uh, to carry out this plot to kill a bunch of people. <clears throat> you know, but Tax does, he kind of threatens to remove his blindfold, right? To kind of give Baz an obvious reminder of the reader's injustice. Remember, Tax had his eyes uh, ripped out because uh, Deliritus discovered that Tax was able to read, you know, I guess more than 10 years ago now from where we are in the story's timeline. Uh, but Bass stops him because this, uh, obviously this this reminder still upsets him because remember Bass still kind of blames himself a little for what happened because he's kind of the one, and Bass was only eight when this happened, so rightly or wrongly, probably wrongly, but Bass does blame himself. You know, he kind of messed up a, messed up a spell which kind of caused a, a chain reaction and you know Baz also kind of opened his mouth when Tax may have been able to to cover up Deliritus as a discovery of Tax's ability to read and that all ended up leading to Tax being blinded um, but yeah Baz references this terror of his childhood uh, has never fully left him um, you know but kind of harsh here because presumably Tax understands how Baz feels about this but he still threatens to you know, reveal his uh, empty eye sockets, um, you know, to Baz here. And he's like, well, Baz, you need to stop acting like you're the only one who's ever suffered such a horror. Um, so again, kind of, uh, you know, again, like I said at the beginning of our discussion of this chapter nine, uh, intensifying this internal conflict that Baz is having, you know, can, uh, can he really keep denying, um, involvement in in a rebellion when uh you know he has such a stark reminder of these injustices that the readers submit to the speakers to um so again you know we do not have an answer at this point but certainly there's lots of evidence popping up that baz isn't going to be able to keep himself out of the rebellion forever um and then baz baz and tax part ways without really resolving most of the conflict between them though you know they're still brothers, though, right? Be safe, little brother, uh, Tax says as Baz, uh, Baz departs. Um, and then, of course, Baz climbs the stairs up uh, to the main level of the library, and then this guard rushes past and he runs into Baz. Uh, and he shouts, the harbors are fighting! And Baz kind of runs after him, um, curious to see what happens. Um, which leads right to Chapter 10. Baz follows the guard to the Torchsire dining hall. Um, also, what do you think, uh, what does it mean that Baz breaks into a run following the guards after he hears that the harbors are fighting? Um, I don't know. Let's hold that thought for a minute until we get to the end, but, you know, why Why does Baz kind of frantically break into that run there? <clears throat> uh, but okay, he follows the hard to the Torchsire dining hall, which is only a third full, Right. Well, it's only a third, it's, I guess I should say, I have a third full here in my notes, but really what it says in the book is, you know, the whole library is gathered and it only takes up a third of the dining hall. So this serves to remind us that, you know, one, Torchsire is one of the smaller libraries, but they were also, they also apparently used to be larger, which makes sense, right? Because their namesake was Actus Torchsire, who was really one of the readers after the burning, who founded the, you know, the triumvirate and this, this form of government and the separation of powers that erstwhile, or that the land of oration follows today. So it makes sense that at some point Torchsire was larger, but um, it is kind of a, at least it was a struggling library before Deliritus won the trials and brought some wealth back to uh, the library. 
Um, so when Baz gets into the dining hall, which by the way, he's not supposed to be in the dining hall, right? Uh, what's the quote? I don't, I don't have the book open, but it's like, you know, bringing a speaker to dinner is like wearing work boots to the table, you know, uh, not expressly um, prohibited, but not good form. So again, just another, you know, kind of offhand reference to, you know, comparing speakers to boots. <laughs> and so again, not, again, not flattering for the speakers. Um, but Farston is uh, standing up talking just to set the scene here. I think we've got a, not I think, I wrote it so I know. <laughs> we've got a bunch of tables out and then there's the kind of the table of honor up at the front of the room uh, where Deliritus and Duke Octavenal and Duke Farston are seated. And uh, Farston is addressing the assembled Torchsire readers. Um he references this person called Devonstare, who um, we don't really know who that is at this point, but some sort of uh, mythological figure, it sounds like. You know, Farston is going on about how Devonstare, you know, he defied his rightful king, and now the warriors who had the rebels from fortune are using him as, like, kind of their symbol of inspiration. And obviously, Farston has a negative view of this, so he views this. Devonstare, whoever he was, as a uh, as kind of a, a fiend or a, a villain type character. Um, of course, I'm sure the warriors have a different perspective of that, which we will uh, learn later in the story. But for now, just kind of keep this in mind. This is the first reference we've seen to this Devonstare person. Um, Farston also makes a quick reference that he has lived through the death of a loved one. You know, so maybe just a, a tidbit of backstory for, for Farston there, but just store that away for later reference as well. Um, but Farston kind of wraps up his uh, speech rather quickly once Baz arrives, and he gives Deliritus an opportunity to address the assembly, kind of pumping him up a little as, uh, you know, your library's uh, trials victor. Um, you know, and Baz notes, apparently Deliritus is actually pretty good at public speaking. You know, he has uh, been undergoing education to be uh, the leader of the library one day, since he is Duke Octavenal's heir. So it kind of makes sense that he'd be good at public speaking. Um, and he, you know, addresses the crowd briefly and gets some cheers out of them. And this, of course, annoys Baz, because, uh, you know, Deliritus is able to accept praise for, quote, winning the trials, and he looks good while doing it, even though Baz knows it's just all a lie. You know, I guess you do uh, You do wonder, is Baz a little jealous that Deliritus is getting all the credit when Baz is the one who did all the work? Um, I don't know, it's an, inter- an interesting question. Maybe, um, maybe a little. I think Baz is just more upset with... I, again, I feel like I've uh, way overused the word injustice on this episode, but I can think it's just another reminder of... Uh, you know, Baz isn't necessarily looking... Uh, uh, to be held up as a hero. Um, he doesn't really want the adoration of readers. He does not like the readers. But on the other hand, the fact that Delirious is getting all this praise for something he did not actually do, um, you know, it just it's like rubbing uh, rubbing the unfairness of Baz's situation in his face here. So I think that's more along the lines of where Baz is at, not necessarily jealous. <clears throat> um so Baz actually almost storms out because apparently there aren't any there aren't any harbors fighting when Baz gets to the dining hall. But then Farston kind of interrupts Deliritus a little here and says, "You know, he's got some entertainment planned for this evening." Um, and what is that entertainment? Well, apparently him and Deliritus were having a nice little conversation over lunch about who the greatest fighter in erstwhile is. And uh, of course, uh, Deliritus says that he thinks it was rocks or thinks it is rocks, and Farson's like, oh, that's interesting, because I think my own harbor is the best fighter in in fortune. Uh, well, why don't we uh, settle this with, uh, you know, a little battle between harbors and give some entertainment to the library this evening? Um, apparently that was, uh, this is Farston's plan. Um, and we do, do new, do, wow, do new, bleh. I speak the English good. <laughs> um... Uh, we note some of Farston's passive-aggressive use of his power here, right? So it's a duel uh, between the harbors, which Baz does note. This is popular form of entertainment, so that isn't necessarily too far out of the ordinary. Uh, 
Um, you know, but Farston kind of sets these rules that uh, they don't seem to be standard rules. So one, they're going to use real weapons, right? So, you know, normally you don't actually have your harbors killing each other in these duels. They use kind of the fake training weapons, but, uh, you know, it's the first to three cuts, and, you know, cuts means you're actually using steel, not um, not fake weapons. Um, and then there's this thing about mortality, where I guess if you're using real weapons, well, usually the person who owns the harbor gets to call mortality because you get to decide whether you're going to risk your own harbor once he gets injured or not. But Farson's like, oh, well, no. And, and this this seems to be a lie based on how everyone reacts. But he's also putting Deliritus in a situation where he will look like a coward if he doesn't accept. But he's like, well, oh, you let your... Uh, you let the owner of the harbor call mortality? Well, I guess some of the lesser libraries in Fortune do that, you know, implying that, again, implying that Deliritus is maybe going to be uh, viewed as a coward if he does not accept Farston's <coughs> uh, terms here. So the the thing with having the opponent call mortality is, well, on the one hand, uh, you know, so mortality is kind of like throwing in the towel in a boxing match, right? You know, if the the uh the coach or the manager i'm sorry i don't know who uh the trainer i guess i don't know i'm not exactly sure what the term in boxing is but if the uh the guy in your corner throws in the towel that's like saying okay we we forfeit you know it's it it's over <clears throat> um so mortality is kind of the same way except uh you're banking on your opponent's person to throw in the towel for you in the rules that farston has laid out so you can see two negatives here one you could kind of throw in the towel for the other person at like the merest thing. So it's like, oh, if you got a scratch on the arm that could become infected and die, we're going to call mortality. <laughs> but on the other hand, if you've got a cruel person on the other side, they could call, uh, they could just refuse to call it, right? Even so, if the harbor is clearly, clearly wounded um, uh, severely, he could still refuse to call mortality. So that's the, the situation Farston has put uh, the Lyritus into. Um, I don't know that I have too much to say about the fight itself. I hope you hope you liked the fight scene, but you know what we get out of this um, is really that Farston's harbor is uh, is better than rocks, right? Which maybe comes as a bit of a surprise, but you know rocks is uh, well uh, well versed in how to use his razor, but apparently uh, Farston's harbor was trained by uh, Hinan Vanjo, who is the uh, the leader of the Indomitable Army, which we'll read more about later. Apparently, a sword, a sword master. Um, so you know, you know, Rox is good, but he can't stand up to you know someone who's received personal tutelage from this uh, apparently famous sword master um, from Fortune. So uh, Rox does get a hit in, right? So he does. He doesn't get shut out, but. Um, you know, for the third and final strike, you know, Rox has lost some blood and he, he trips and then he basically gets impaled by uh, by Farston's, Farston's harbor and collapses, you know. Thankfully, never fear, Rox is not going to die. We do have the, uh, we do have magical healing in the world of Oration. And uh, Deliritus was apparently anticipating this because he brought Delida with him, right? Remember, Delida is his uh, creator. So she is able to speak healing spells, um, you know, but we see Baz, you know, Baz rushes to Brox's side after he collapses and Deliritus is like, what are you doing here? Uh, what are you doing here, Baz? But, um, I think we kind of, so circling back to that question I posed at the beginning of chapter 10, uh, you know, Baz, whether he wants to admit it to himself or not, cares about Rox, right? He has some concern for him. You know, he, he rushes to Rox's side when he sees him, uh, when he sees him go down. Um, so Rox is healed, but, um, then he goes to sleep, or at least passes out, you know, and we see kind of Deliritus's, uh, care for Rox. He bundles up his cloak and puts it under Rox's head like a pillow, and then Farston comes over and kind of rubs it in to Deliritus. Well, I guess maybe I shouldn't say that, not rubs it in, but we see kind of, uh, Farston's emotive here, kind of cowing Deliritus. Uh, you know, establishing his superiority over him. You know, he tells uh, he tells Deliritus, you know, you thought your security strong as stone, but really it was built upon a foundation of glass. 
impressive in the light of day, but likely to shatter when tested by the dark of reality. I trust you'll remember that in the days to come. Uh, so, you know, Farston is acting like the uh, the gracious uh, guest here, but, you know, privately we really see he is just trying to cow Deliritus. It's like, I'm your superior boy, and, you know, now uh, I have emphasized that. Uh, Farston also reminds us, too, uh, you know, Rox is going to be tired after being healed from such a grievous wound, so is, uh, is Farston trying to kind of uh, destroy uh, Deliritus' defenses here? And if so, what is, what's his endgame? Um, you know, we, we don't know yet, but it seems that Farston has some sort of plan in mind here, and, uh, obviously we'll want to be looking out for what that is in the, in the chapters to come. Also, we get this quick reminder that Farston has some interest in Baz. Again, we don't really know what that's all about at this point, but he also, uh, makes a point of turning to Baz. I look forward to our impending time on the road, speaker. You know, again, which is just odd because generally a reader wouldn't even address a speaker at all. You know, I think like like Octavinal said uh, earlier. Maybe he didn't say exactly this, but it's like you know, it'd be like it'd be like talking to your chair. You know, just, they're just property. You know, you don't talk to property. So it's it is interesting how much of an interest Farston seems to have in Baz. <clears throat> Um, and then we kind of, uh, roll on to the end of the, end of the chapter, you know, Farston walks away and Baz is like, Deliritus, what are you getting us into taking us on a trip with this guy? And then, you know, Deliritus drops his bomb and says, you know, Farston knows I didn't complete the act as trials. And that's how chapter 10 and part one of Declaimer's Discovery concludes. Um, so, but obviously that's pretty serious, right? Because if... Obviously, this Duke Farston is a very important person. That he is the Duke of uh, presumably one of the most powerful libraries in Fortune, since it's the library that was founded by Liamina Fortune, one of the scribes. Um, and he's also the chair of the Triumvirate Congress, so a very important person. And if he knows uh, that Deliritus didn't complete the trials, that probably means that he knows about Baz, too. So this is just bad news all around, so we're going to see where this goes from here. Okay, so that is this week's episode. Uh, homework for next week. Uh, we'll be reading chapter 11. Uh, you know, what do you mean he knows our secret? That's uh, the the quote on the, uh, the back of the physical <laughs> book, uh, and we'll, uh, we now see what that means. Uh, after Deliritus has revealed that Farston knows he didn't complete the Actus Trials. What do you mean, Deliritus? <laughs> um, and then we also see this excursion to Fortune. Deliritus and Baz are about to go on. They get a new participant. They're going to have a new uh, travel companion. Who, Who is that, and uh, what potential issues does that raise? And uh, Duke Octavenal, he is scheming. Um, we'll see his gears turning in Chapter 11. So look out for all of that, and we will uh, we'll read chapter 11 on next week's episode. Um, that brings us to our quote, and um, unfortunately I don't have a... I didn't prepare a fantasy quote of the week this week, um, or an accompanying essay. Like I said, I literally got home like uh, Thursday night, right before the newsletter comes out Friday morning. So we'll be back to normal uh, fantasy quotes of the week and essays next week. Uh, but I did pull a quote out of Declaimer's Stand, uh, part four of the Spoken Books Uprising, which just came out. So a little shameless plug here, but I like this one. Um, this is from uh, Rocks in Declaimer's Stand. <clears throat> Blood may be thicker than water, but it's useless once spilled. True family are the ones who remain there for you, no matter how many spills you take. Um, I like that because I think uh, that's an ongoing theme throughout the whole series too. You know what exactly is family, um, and I just thought was a that was a nice way to put it. A nice plan words of the, uh, you know, the typical blood is thicker than water quote maybe turning it on its head a little. 
Um, I'd love to hear what you think about that, or if you have read Declaimers Stand, uh, let me know what you think of that, too. Shoot me an email, dtkane at dtkane.com, and consider leaving a review of it on Amazon and Goodreads and wherever else uh, you read books. I don't believe you actually have to have purchased the book from a particular retailer uh, to leave a review of it. Certainly, if you do at a specific place, don't violate any terms uh, or conditions or terms of service or anything like that but I don't think you do and it does help me out if you if you leave reviews of my books um, so if you're you're looking to you know uh, give me a little boost you know leave leave reviews of Declaimer Stand and uh, all the other books in the Spoken Books Uprising you know everywhere you can that'll that'll help me out uh, greatly so thank you uh, for that, check out Declaimer Stand, or uh, if you haven't quite gotten to part four yet, you can read, uh, you know, you're, we're reading along with Declaimer's Discovery here right now. Declaimer's Flight is part three of the Spoken Books Uprising, so consider picking one of those up. Uh, or just keep tuning into the podcast, where we will be reading uh, all of these books uh, for free, one chapter at a time. Um, so, as always, thank you very much for listening and until next time this has been dt kane's epic fantasy book club thanks for listening to dt kane's epic fantasy book club if you liked today's episode please consider rating and reviewing wherever you listen to podcasts if you're watching on youtube give this video a thumbs up if you liked it and hit that subscribe button and the bell so you get notified whenever new episodes become available if you'd like to listen to back episodes or review the show notes, visit dtkane.com slash podcast. DT Kane's novels are available for purchase at most major online retailers, or you can purchase directly from his website at www.dtkane.com slash books. You can receive a free short story and sign up for DT Kane's mailing list at dtkane.com slash email dash sign up. If you'd like to connect, you can find DT Kane on Facebook at DT Kane Author or Twitter at DT Kane Author or send DT Kane an email at DT Kane at DT Kane.com. See you next week.